Thank you for doing that with me. And I would ask you to continue to pray for them as they're away and for God to use them. Um, we're going to jump into the scriptures this morning. We've been going through the life of David this summer. Uh, last week, uh, Dr. Carr walked us through the, the entry of the ark into the city. The, the great rejoicing and worship as God's presence was celebrated amongst his people. And what we look at today is as things develop, David becomes uneasy with the way things are arranged. David is in a permanent home that he has set up for himself as the king. And yet God's ark rests outside of the city uh, in a temporary fixture. It's in a large tent and it's kept there. And David believes this to be inappropriate. So David goes before the Lord with this desire that he might be able to build a temple for God, a permanent home for his presence to dwell with his people. And God says no to David. David wants to do a good thing. He wants to honor the Lord. But God says, David, you've been a man of war. And you've shed too much blood for you to be the man who builds the house of the Lord amongst the people. And in the midst of that, in the midst of God telling David no, we get this really important promise. It's what theologians will call the Davidic covenant, where God makes a covenant or a promise with David about what he's going to do. And I want you to turn to Second Samuel chapter 7 with me. We're going to read God's promise to David. As you go there to verse 12, I want you to see what's going to happen here. This promise that God gives David is going to become David's legacy. It's going to become the thing that David leaves behind. And I think legacy is an incredibly important idea. When we think about our legacy, we're thinking about what are we going to leave to those who come behind us. And this is different from inheritance, right? Inheritance deals with the transition of of goods and worldly wealth from one person to another. The courts get involved with that. But legacy is something entirely different. Legacy deals with the attributes and the example that my life serves to represent to those who come behind me. See, inheritance is when, when I might give whatever worldly wealth I have to my children, right? And they'll have it, and they can dispense of it and use it as they will. But legacy is deeper than that. It's what my life stood for, what it really meant, the lessons that my life taught. And in David's legacy, you're going to see something significant because David's legacy is completely intertwined with his relationship with God and God's promises to him. And truthfully, every lasting legacy is built around that. It's built around understanding God's promise, trusting him to be faithful to his promises, and being faithful in response to the goodness of God. Any legacy that's built on anything other than that will ultimately fade. If a family has a legacy of athletic ability, at some point the genetics kind of peter out and, and the kid's not great. I mean, Ted Williams, one of the greatest baseball players in the history of the world. His son never made it out of the minor leagues. So it's not always something you can easily hand down if it's anything really other than spiritual legacy, something rooted in who God is, what God's promised to us, and our faithfulness to him. And so I want you to see in this promise what will become the legacy of David in chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled 
and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all of these words and in accordance with this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so God gave a word to the prophet Nathan. And and this is what it was. That your son will take over the throne after you. And I will allow him to build a house for me. This temple that you have wanted to build, I'm going to allow your son to do that. And I'm going to establish his kingdom. There's going to be security and strength in his kingdom. And after him will come a kingdom that will last forever. And and what the prophet Nathan does here is something that theologians call telescoping. Whereas you look into the corridor of time, into the future, and things look somewhat flat. We can't sense the dimensions. Almost if you're standing in the mountains and you're looking out upon the mountains, it's difficult to discern which one's further from the other. Is that mountain much shorter or is it just further in the distance we we can't tell because of our depth perception and when the prophets often would speak throughout history and what would be to come there would be events that would happen in the near term like solomon taking over the kingdom and building the temple and god's relationship to solomon where he says when he sins i will discipline him as a father but i won't turn from him i won't take the kingdom from him even though he's going to wander at times and so there's a promise that's, that's for this next generation after David, his son Solomon. But there's also this other promise that rolls out into eternity where he says, I will establish your household and your kingdom forever. So you have the promises to Solomon and then you have the promise to his lineage beyond him. And there's essentially three elements to the promise. The first is that David's son will be established firmly as the king of Israel. The second is that they would be allowed to build the temple that David had wanted to complete. And the third is that there would be this kingdom that would come from his lineage that would be unending. That there would be an unending, everlasting kingdom from the family and house of David. Now, this is what's called the covenant with David or the Davidic covenant. A covenant is simply this. It's a promise from God to men. So when we talk about these covenants, you'll hear people say the Abrahamic covenant or God's covenant with Abraham. You might hear about the Mosaic or the covenant of Moses. It's a promise that God makes. And in every instance, God initiates the covenant. There's not an instance in Scripture where man initiates covenant with God, but God rather descends to man and makes promises to them. Now, there are two ways that God makes covenants, and I want to show you examples of them. Some are conditional covenants, where God says, if you do this, I will do this. And it's a promise where God says, I am promising you that if you do this, I'll do that. And so I'll give you an example uh, that we use with our children. We might say, if everyone eats good, including the Brussels sprouts, we'll buy you ice cream. 
That's a conditional covenant, right? I'm promising to do something, but in order to receive the blessings of the promise, you have to do your part. An example of that in the Bible is God's covenant with Moses. God lays out the law, his expectation of how the people of God will live. And he says this to them. If you will walk faithfully according to these laws, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be blessed in the countryside. You're going to be blessed in the city. Blessing will overtake you. But if you're unfaithful to the law that I'm giving you today, you will be cursed. You'll be cursed in the city. You'll be cursed in the country. Cursings will overtake you. And what God told them is that he would no longer protect them from the other nations. And that they would come in and they would be scattered amongst the nations, no longer living in the land in security and safety, ruled and governed by their own king. And so the, the These are promises, but it's conditional. Based upon the response of the people, God would give them one or the other. There are other covenants that are unconditional, where God simply makes a promise. I'll give you two examples of that. God's covenant with Noah. After the ark had come to rest on dry land and they had come out, God made a covenant with Noah, and he promised Noah that he would never again destroy the earth with water. And it's a promise. It wasn't related to how good Noah behaved. Noah didn't have to be really nice for five years. And once the probationary period ended, God would no longer destroy the earth with water. God simply made a promise and it was unconditional. A similar example would be God's covenant with Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. It's formalized as a covenant in Genesis 15. And God simply says this, I am going to make you a great nation. And I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God just makes a promise to Abraham about what he's going to do. Now, the covenant God makes with David here is an interesting one, because it is both conditional and unconditional at the same time. And I want to walk through how that works before we begin to talk more about this promise. It's an unconditional promise. You you just heard it. If you go to Psalm chapter 89, you'll see the promise reaffirmed by God in verse 35. He says, once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the sky. So here's the promise. I'm going to establish the family and kingdom of David forever. And God says, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be faithful to this. I'm going to do exactly what I said I was going to do. But as you look to the words of David, as he approaches his death in 1 Kings, you're going to see David providing some additional insight about when and how this promise is to be received. So I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. This is David speaking. He says that the Lord may establish what the word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so I want you to see the promise in two ways. It is in one sense unconditional. God is going to do this. He is going to establish a king from the lineage of David to reign forever. But whom it is and at what point they reign is determined based upon their faithfulness to God. So it's unconditional. God is going to do this. He's promised to do it. He will do it. But it is conditional in that not every son of David will get to have this blessing. 
And I want you to see the way things roll out across the history of David's family. David's son Solomon begins exceptionally well. God gives him wisdom and he seeks the Lord. Now, over his lifetime, he begins to waver. He begins to go outside of the lines and he struggles. But by the time you get to David's grandson, things are not so good. Rehoboam is not a good king. He's not faithful. He is hard on the people. And under his leadership, the kingdom divides. You go down generations, you begin to see king after king beginning to turn from God, with the exception of every now and then, one would rise up who would be faithful. It's always interesting to me that Josiah is one of them, and he's about eight years old when he becomes king. But by the time you get to Josiah's grandchildren and great-grandchildren, the kings are wicked again. You get a guy named Jehoiakim and one named Jeconiah, and they're so wicked that God says, I'm done with Israel. I'm just done. Let Judah be taken over by the Babylonians. And that's what happens. So this isn't a promise that every descendant of David will reign as king in an unending succession of kings forever, but it is a promise to one descendant of David who will come and have his kingdom established. And so you have this condition and unconditional element. And now there's multiple covenants, and I want you to see kind of how these all fit together because they create a flow throughout the history of God's movement. And they really create a bit of the outline of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, the promise is given to Abraham. And he says this, I'm going to make you my own people. He calls Abraham out of the Chaldeans, which are the forerunners to the Babylonians. And he says, you follow me. I want you to go to the land I'm going to show you. Leave your father and mother. Leave your household. And I'm going to make a great nation from you. And in the midst of that, we see God desire to bless his people. We see him desiring to use his people to be a blessing to all the nations. Because the promise is, you're going to be blessed, and through you, all the nations on the earth will be blessed. And so, we have two significant things we walk away from that covenant with. God will bless his people, and he wants to use them to bless all of the nations, all the families on the earth. So we know that this movement now is coming through these descendants of Abraham. God then calls them out of Egypt where they were in slavery, establishes them as a nation through the work of the prophet Moses. And he gives a covenant to Moses, which is how they are to live in response to God. And what it should look like to be the people of God. And the hope that God had in establishing Israel as his people was that they would faithfully walk with him. And that they'd be distinct and different from all the nations surrounding them. And he places them in the middle of the crossroads of the nations. If you look at the map, you're going to see that Israel is the trade route between three continents. And all of it runs through Jerusalem. And so he sets his people there to be distinct and different in the hopes that the nations would see. This is what it looks like to walk with God. And this is what it looks like when God's hand of blessing is upon a people. And that would draw them, the scriptures say, like a city on a hill. The people would look to Israel and see them and want to seek after God because of that. But in the midst of that, there's also judgment if they're disobedient. But this is the way that we should live. And then he narrows things further. He says it's not just about the nation. It's about this king. This king who's going to come. Who's going to reign over all creation. He'll have an unending kingdom that will reign forever. And then lastly, you get the new covenant where we, just, we see that this reign extends beyond geography into our hearts in Jeremiah 31, where the scriptures say, I'm going to write my word on their hearts. So that's the movement 
as God lays out his plan in the form of promises to his people. Now, we look at this promise and legacy God gave to David, and I want you to see how it's fulfilled because it's not in the most direct path. I find that things walking with the Lord usually aren't. We don't usually go from path from point A to point B. There's usually a lot in between there. I was talking with one of our brothers in Christ uh, this morning about just the process that the Lord had taken him through and in some physical ailments he was dealing with and just getting to see him doing better. And his, his comment to me was, he said, you know, it's been a process, but God's been faithful. And I can, it's like you walk up uh, the, the steps of a mountain and you can turn around and look and see what God gave you. He said, it takes time, but it's good and God's faithful. And I like to think of it, we, we often want to cook things in the microwave, but with God it seems more crockpot style. Things don't go from here to there. So you look at the story and, and here's how it rolls out. God gives this promise to David. And, and, and the most obvious plain reading, if we didn't know any of the story, would be, well, there'd be an unending succession of David's son on the king and that Israel would do great and they would grow and expand, but that's not how it happened. So before long, Israel and Judah split into two nations. And before incredibly long, the northern kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity by the Assyrians. A few hundred years later, the southern kingdom of Judah is taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And so here the people are with this promise from God that they're going to have a king who's the son of David on the throne, ruling in righteousness and justice forever. And they find themselves in exile. So foreign powers have come and taken over and they've been spread out among the nations. And and they're reminded over and over again by the prophets of this promise. God doesn't walk away from this promise and say, well, you guys blew it and I'm not going to do it. He reaffirms the promise all the time. And and if you're familiar with just Christmas or you're one of those people, you just come to church on Christmas morning, you stumbled here by accident today, you might even know this verse. In Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet reaffirms the promise to his people. In chapter 9, verse 6, he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, I want you to to start at the last phrase because I think it's important. He says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so the Lord of hosts is a word picture. Anytime you see that in the scriptures, what's being described is the heavenly armies. And so we say with the Lord of hosts, we're saying God who leads the armies of angels. That's the language. The hosts is a military term. And he's saying the God who has tens and tens of thousands of angels in an army at his disposal in his great passion to accomplish this for David will do this. Now, how's it going to happen? He says, well, there's a son who's going to be born, but he's not going to be just any child from the lineage of David. We get these strange words to describe him. He say he's going to be called wonderful counselor. He, he's going to be called this child who's born is going to be called mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So he's not just any child. And God's tipping us off here that something unique is going to come, that he's going to enter into humanity as the son of David and do for the sons of David what none of the sons of David were able to do, namely to walk faithfully with their whole hearts. He said, but he's going to come. And when he comes, 
the increase of his government and peace and righteousness and justice will be unending. And it's going to begin at a point in time and it will extend forevermore. So the promise gets clarified. Okay, so now what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the son to be born. And then you get this period where the people are in exile of hundreds of years where the Lord doesn't really speak to them. But they've got this promise that they cling to. And then one day, in a little village in the backwoods, not a big city, not a prominent family, a young girl who no one knows, who's not expected to be anything great, hears a message from God. An angel of the Lord comes and speaks to this young woman from a poor family in a small town. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 31, I want you to hear what the angel says to her. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great. And be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forevermore. And of his kingdom there will be no end. So, this baby's born. He's born in a stable. There's no attendance from any fancy court there. There's his mother and father and animals. The first visitors are are shepherds. This boy grows up. Becomes a man and he, he begins to demonstrate the authority of a king in a really strange and unique way. See, most kings demand things of their subjects. And most kings have what they have because they require it of them. So if you lived in, in a city with a king, you would pay a portion of everything you made to your king. And he would take taxes from you and he would send your sons off to war because he's the king. But but this king, Jesus, he, he was different and his authority was greater and so he would do things like they would be out on a boat and and a storm would overtake them and he would stand up and he would tell the waves peace be still and they would obey see most kings have authority over the affairs of men and this one controls the weather There's one day a a man was sick and his friends brought him before Jesus and Jesus looked at him and he said, your sins are forgiven. And everyone grumbled at that because who is he to forgive sins? Where does he get authority to do that? And Jesus responds and says, which is easier that I say your sins are forgiven or that I tell the man to get up and walk? And he did. And the man was healed. So Jesus has authority. He's king over sickness and he's got authority to forgive sin. And a friend of his dies and, and they're, they're too late to get there because they wanted Jesus to heal him. And he walks to the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus obeys his king and comes out. This king doesn't just have authority over, over men and armies and taxes. He has authority over sickness and death and storms. He has the authority to forgive sins. But he comes in a unique way. He doesn't come for people to serve him. No one rushes to bring him things when he enters the city. People don't bow down before him everywhere he goes. He says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. But the problem with this king is that his kingdom ultimately can't coexist with other kingdoms. 
It expands. And those with power and authority on this earth didn't like what was going on. And so the man was put to death. You see, they had received him as a king on on Sunday. They they welcomed him into the city and, and, and shouted, save us. But by Friday, he's nailed to a cross amongst thieves. And everyone who waited for this king's reign to be inaugurated was crushed. We thought he was the one. We thought the kingdom would come here and now we were ready. Here was our king. And now he's just another in the long line of men who confronted the Romans and were killed. You see, but when God writes a story, it never ends at the tomb. On the third day, Jesus was resurrected to eternal life and immortality. The scriptures say he was laid down in weakness and he was raised in glory. With dominion over death, dominion over sin, and dominion over Satan. And our king reigns. And while our king was with us, resurrected, he gave instructions. Because now everyone wants to know, you've beat death, obviously you're the king. So when does the kingdom come? When is it going to come? And so that's the question, and Jesus simply says this. It's not for you to know. The times are set by my Father, and only He knows. But, but you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And, and in that beautiful statement, we learn a couple things. One, the kingdom is coming, and it's going to come in its fullness. But until then, it's advancing progressively. And it's advancing as the people who are subjects to the King are committed to the work of the kingdom. Namely, the spreading of the gospel of Jesus as we proclaim it in word, as we live it out in deed, the making of disciples who will grow in faithfulness and fruitfulness and continue the message of Jesus around the world. And he says, you're going to do this not by your own strength, but you're going to be empowered by the Spirit of God. You're going to receive power of my Spirit comes upon you. And you're going to go be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So we have this amazing reality that the kingdom is coming and we're waiting for that and it's going to advance. And yet in the midst of his promise of it advancing, we know how we fit into the kingdom as well. That God has given us this mission to see the kingdom advance. And I want to tell you, it's powerful when you get to see it. The kingdom is advancing all around us, even when we're frustrated with some of the things in our country and how things are moving. There are men and women growing in their faith here in Tomball. There are men and women and children coming to faith in Jesus, learning what it is to be mature followers of Christ, letting it transform their marriages, how they parent, their interactions at work giving a sense of mission to their friendships and their relationships with neighbors. All this stuff is happening here in Tomal, and I've gotten to see it from the front row, and it's an amazing work of God. The kingdom is advancing in Honduras as young men and women are hearing the gospel of Jesus, are getting discipled in what it means to walk with Him and learning a new way of life as the people of God come alongside and partner with them. We're seeing the church rapidly expand, so much so that, that in the course of one year, we went from meeting in a little chapel uh, about an eighth of the size of this room uh, to a basketball court that's jam-packed because the gospel is advancing. The gospel is advancing in Uganda where churches are being planted, where pastors are being trained, where we're seeing evangelism take place. Hundreds of people accepting Christ in prisons, in schools, in their huts, and in the church 
all around Uganda. We're seeing the gospel advance in Ethiopia, where we have gotten a chance to partner with the disciples-making movement that's not only affecting Ethiopia, but i got to tell you, it's reaching continentally across Africa into South America. It's actually transformed what we do here in Tomball. The gospel is advancing all around us, and it's advancing as the Spirit of God has empowered people to take up this kingdom work. So the kingdom is coming in its fullness, but it's advancing incrementally every day as the men and women of God take up the call to make disciples. And and these promises to David are really important for us. And I want to step into that and, and give you kind of three really significant reasons we should be thankful for God's promise to David. The first is the lowest common denominator, the simplest thing, is this. God has a plan and promises of good things for his people. And we should never look back past that and just assume it to be true without celebrating it. That in light of all of our sin and rebellion, God still looks upon us with kindness and affection and he has a plan for us. And he's communicated that plan to us. He hasn't just made it and says, I'll let them know when they see it. He's actually shared it with us and told us how we fit into the plan of the kingdom. So we should celebrate that. Our God is good to us and he's made promises. And he blesses his children. The second thing you'll see is that this kingdom is ever expanding. It's an exhaustive kingdom. And part of that means I don't get to be king anymore. I don't get to have the illusion of, of ruling and reigning in my own life. I have to surrender to the king because he's good to me, because I know that fighting against him only leads to my destruction, and that welcoming his rule and reign in my life brings joy and satisfaction. So I have to lay that down. But his kingdom is exhaustive in three ways. First, it's exhaustive in time. There will come a moment in time where his reign will expand across all of creation when everyone will submit. The scriptures say that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will bow in joy or you you will bow, but you will bow. His kingdom will come at a moment in time in its fullness and completion. But his kingdom also is exhaustive throughout time, meaning that once it comes, it stays and remains forever there will be no threats to destroy it the third is that it's exhaustive relationally you see as much as i want to follow the lord i'm engaged in the civil war in my own heart where i struggle with my sin and the promise we have is that when his kingdom comes he will not over only reign over all of the earth geographically or politically but he will reign over the hearts of his people So that the word of God will be written on our hearts like the prophet Jeremiah says. And that we'll willfully and joyfully submit to his reign and we'll receive it gladly. The third thing I want you to see about this beautiful covenant is that it is a blessing for all of us. These are promises to David. God didn't give me a promise that my son will be king. But I walk into the blessing of this promise through Jesus. It's mine because we're children of God and we are one with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we get this amazing, simple statement that I cling to. It says, for all of the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. See, all of the promises of the covenants belong to Jesus. They are his And I belong to him and have been given access to these blessings because of him. 
Not because I've deserved anything, not because I'm party to the covenants, not because I claim some promise to the people of Israel. Jesus is the sole recipient of all of the covenant blessings, and I belong to him. And because of that, these blessings overflow to us in the church. And because of that, we have great hope. Not only that, Jesus tells us in Revelation chapter 22 that the promise is for all who would come. I want you to, to turn in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. This is the way Jesus closes the words of Scripture. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the church is that I am at the root the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So when you didn't hear what he's saying, he said, look, I'm the son of David that's been foretold, that's been waited for. I'm the king who reigns. I'm inviting you to come. Anyone who's thirsty, would you come? Anyone who desires come, because in Jesus, the satisfactions, the longings of our hearts are met in their completion. Jeremiah tells us that his people have sinned against him in two ways. One, they have rejected him, the water of life. And two, they have sown for themselves broken cisterns that cannot satisfy. So the imagery, he says, is you've got crystal clear mountain spring water there to drink, to have your thirst quench. And instead, in our sin, we run and we lap up water from the mud puddle. He says, you protect me in that way. But if you desire what is good, you'll come to me and I'll give it to you freely. That's the promise our king gives. He says, you come. You're thirsty for me? Come. And your longings will be satisfied and your thirst will be quenched. He says, come. And that's not an invitation for a few people. That's not a blessing for just the house of David. That's for all who would come. For all who would come. Because our king is good and he reigns over all creation. And when we get together and we celebrate communion, thinking in terms of what is to come, I think it infuses things with something important. Because communion serves two functions for us. As we gather around the Lord's table, There's the obvious command that we're to remember Jesus. And so we take the bread that symbolizes the body of Jesus broken for us. And then we take the cup. Which symbolizes his blood of the new covenant which is poured out for us. And we remember him. We remember what he did for us. And so Jesus told us that we're to take the bread and the cup. And we're to do that in remembrance of him. But when the Apostle Paul instructs the church in 1 Corinthians 11, he says something very important. He says, every time you do this, every time you remember his body that was broken for you, every time you remember his blood of the new covenant which was poured out for you, you do something. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so our time here at the table is not just one of remembrance. It's one of remembrance, but it's also one of anticipation. That we believe wholeheartedly that our King is coming for us. And as we look back in history to His death and resurrection, we know that our King is able and we know that our King is good. And because of that remembrance, we're able to walk faithfully with Him, strengthened by His Spirit, reminded of His might and His goodness in anticipation of His return for us. So we can believe the promise that He's coming for us because we've looked back to what He has done already. So we remember, but we proclaim his death until he comes. I want to ask the gentleman that will be helping with the Lord's table to come forward.
as they do, as I don't want you worried about the ceremonial or logistical side of this. The gentleman will come by. You receive the bread and then the cup. This is an opportunity for you to seek the Lord, to pray. The scriptures say to examine your hearts. If there's sin that you need to be repentant of and you need to seek the Lord's strength to overcome, this is a chance to do that so that you might be renewed and strengthened. But God has given this as a gift that we would remember his goodness and anticipate his coming so that every day between now and then we'd be strengthened to walk faithfully with him. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We pray that you would bless and watch over us. We ask you to guide us. We pray that in the midst of the struggles of the day, we would be faithful to you and that your spirit would renew us, that we might live in remembrance and anticipation. In Jesus' name, amen.